This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings you solace in your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in. And as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens and a temper that never tires and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Julian K. Jarbo author of Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel. I've always been very interested in the sensory questions of, of writing, the very physical reaction that you get from the reader. You know, I'm thinking about it like art. I'm like, what kinds of things in the body do I want people to be dealing with? We'll be back with Julian K. Jarbo in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Julian Jarbo, who writes poetry, essays, reviews, and fiction. Julian Jarbo is also a visual artist, and sound designer. Jarbo's collection, Everyone on the Moon is Essential, 
presents stories which are described as body horror fairy tales and mid-apocalyptic Catholic cyberpunk. The themes explore memory, myth, gender, transformation, loss, and questions of how to find meaning, love, and safety in an ever-changing world. The stories in the collection are visceral and intimate, and both funny and sad simultaneously. We began the discussion with Jarbo sharing what brought them to the page and some of the origins of their sensibility. I actually studied visual art. I, uh, I went to the Mass College of Art in Boston. Um, I've lived in Massachusetts my whole life. And um, incidentally, the only state art school in the country. It's uh, kind of a, a unique place in a lot of ways. But it was a little bit squeezed for certain resources in some ways, too. And I found myself in the middle and end of art school many years ago without studio space. <laughs> so I was studying something called the Studio for Interrelated Media, which is a very uh, long way of saying like kind of the, the new media and conceptual driven art practice. It was this program where the entire department met once a week to put on a show and then every aspect of the show was was critiqued so it wasn't just people presenting their art but it was the people who were helping them light it were also receiving feedback as if this were part of the whole package so that's kind of the creative training that I went into but I also just didn't have the money to have a dedicated art space for certain sorts of things like um, installation art or sculpture or something like that it, they pretty much necessitate a lot of tools, a lot of space. And and writing and um, text was something that was very much part of the art curriculum as well. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily studying creative writing in English the way that somebody at a liberal arts school was, but I was studying Barbara Kruger and Jenny Holzer and, and people who were using text in in a fine art setting. And I started, I started writing from that. So I was kind of responding to a lot of very like ecrastic writing, you know, manifesto kind of stuff. And it turns out that's pretty easy to keep doing uh, regardless of your situation. So I could, I could keep writing even when I didn't have a stable place to live. And even when I had to do it on the bus at six in the morning, I've always been very interested in the sensory questions of, of writing, the very physical reaction that you get from the reader. You know, I'm thinking about it like art. I'm like, what kinds of things in the body do I want people to be dealing with? And sometimes that's on the level of language choice and the sentence. And other times, you know, that's about narrative. I think that partially explains why there seems to be so much um, different influences that come into the into the different stories. Yeah, and I'm really curious, one, about that transition from making physical art to to writing and if, if you found something similar and then to follow that up because you're talking about kind of physicality, how when you think about craft, how do you think about trying to have people feel what you write in the body? I read all of my work out loud <laughs> to myself. Uh, is a big part of the drafting process for me. Stories start with like a feeling. Um, oftentimes things are pulled from real experiences, but I'm trying to reconcile sorts of like questions. I find myself asking a lot of questions and I don't necessarily know how to answer them. And if I did, I would write an essay. So instead I start investigating them with character and with point of view. And oftentimes I'll sit down and even land the, the word use that I want to 
using a particular story. So, you know, style is very deliberate. I guess there's a very there's a very straightforward example. One of the stories in the collection is called I'm a Beautiful Bug. And that one is, um, you know, straight up um, playing on motifs from Kafka, but using a tone that is a little bit more akin to like an unhinged uh, comment section on a website. <laughs> and uh, I was, I was trying to, you know, accomplish something very specific with, with evoking both of those things at the same time, which is I wanted it to sort of feel very nauseous and unrelenting because that was the feeling that I was trying to capture with, with that. And so, you know, I sat down to write that story in a, in a hot room in an uncomfortable chair listening to the same song on repeat for hours until the story was done, <laughs> like just really honing in on the impatience and the frustration and the dehumanizing experiences that I had had personally that I was bringing to it, as well as kind of the sort of perpetual upset stomach feeling that, that a lot of Kafka's work has. What I really wanted to do with that is say, okay, say you wake up one morning and you're a bug and that's the coolest thing that's ever happened to you. You love being a bug. You know, no one can tell you you're a monster. You're a beautiful bug. But um, you, you have other problems. You know, uh, people don't really like giant bugs very much. Um, and so you're presented with a lot of the same issues as even if you, you had to upload them. So there was very much like, a, um, I'm going to make myself feel as disgusting as I kind of want to explore in this. Because uh, it's a story about disgust. story about other people's disgust for a person being kind of this like really unfortunate social negotiation, whereas the real disgust is, of course, that we have all these dehumanizing ways that we treat each other. You had mentioned, did you say like social transaction or something? I don't want to use the word bureaucracy, I think, because it's kind of um, evokes a very specific kind of gripe against waiting in line at the post office. And that's not not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about what I find interesting about Kafka's work and what went into the story, I'm a beautiful bug that was playing on it. It really is more about a bigger bunch of interlocking systems that I would call like, you know, the social transaction, I guess we could say. You go outside and you interact with systems, you interact with other people, people project meaning onto you before you get to even open your mouth. And so I was very interested in the way that a lot of these things are very dehumanizing. And what I find so compelling about like the incredibly painfully drawn out and confusing sorts of experiences that are sort of famously represented in Kafka's work. It's like a lot, a lot of times it just sort of comes down to like, ah, yes, haha, bureaucracy, isn't it tedious? The legal system is so tedious, you know, the political system is so tedious. And I think that's like a shallow takeaway. So yes, the story I'm a Beautiful Bug does have kind of like an extended farce at the DMV in it, but it also is not about that. It's it's sort of about like how in every single interaction, you could just be like talking to your manager at the supermarket. You could be trying to figure out a, a conflict with your landlord. These are all sort of systems in which people get stuck and people get discarded. And so I set out very specifically to have this kind of like series of very different settings in which the protagonist is struggling and failing against, despite the fact that they absolutely love being a gigantic bug. Uh, everything is sort of out to be like, mm, you can't do that, actually. And they're like, but why not? And no one can really give them a good reason. 
So literally the story opens and it said, it starts with for many years, I longed to be an enormous insect. And this main character finds a plastic surgeon in Canada who does full body reconstructive work and changes this person (laughs) into a bug. And so they they go back to their real life. They experience a lot of challenges from crossing the border. And now they, they don't really look like their license anymore and they get their license (laughs) taken away and how you can start to function in the world when you have no ID and how you can get paid or show up at work. And, you know, one of the things I wrote, like one of the notes early on was like feeling that the idea of feeling so alien in your body, mostly before this person became a bug. But then thinking after this, does that alienation go away? Does this make you feel better? There's always sort of this um, emphasis on certain kinds of people, uh, and and I it, it's tempting to to say just uh, transgender people, but I very sort of carefully and deliberately didn't want to pigeonhole this story into one neat little metaphor. I don't think trans people invented or owned the market on um, crappy experiences of, of embodiment in American setting. But um, yeah, there are certain ways of just having an existence where all of a sudden people uh, are very curious about like, well, why would you do that? Doesn't that make life harder for you? And it's like this really circular problem. It's like, well, it wouldn't be harder for me if you would stop being such a jerk about it. <laughs> but people are really interested in the kind of like curious details, right? So I guess I'm comfortable saying that a personal experience that really informed this story was at a DMV uh, where it, it took me an extremely long time to get a driver's license myself that um, reflected uh, a lot of my other legal documents. And so there was this runaround where Massachusetts was kind of at a point where you still needed, you know, a doctor's note and a therapist's note to update personal information that there would be no there would be no reason why people would change these things for the purposes of fraud. Like the only reason someone would come into the DMV and say I need to change the the, the F or the M on my driver's license is like no one would just do this except for sincerely held beliefs. But basically I was at a position where every single time I had to do a chore like that, it was an entire day that I had to take off of work where I wasn't making money to then spend money, pay a copay, you know, wait to see a doctor, explain the situation, hope that they were sympathetic enough to do it quickly. So it was a big runaround where, where something as already kind of famously um, drawn out as waiting in line at DMV is actually like a multi-week process of different appointments and different, you know, calls and copays and, and stuff like that. But the key, the key thing is that I spend approximately zero time in the greater scheme of things, you know, writhing about angsting about how difficult having a body is when I'm by myself. But then I go outside and I can't like update a piece of paperwork without a complete circus and I run around like, this is the hard part is the, is the paperwork <laughs> documentation and, and existing in the system and having a demographic checkbox that actually describes you like these have enormous consequences in people's lives. A lot of that went into that story in particular. Well, one of the other things about, about this story that I found that this character at many times, I felt that they were making themselves very small to accommodate the Mm -hmm. rest of the world and how their change imposes on other people. It's not ever about this person's need. It's about everyone else. It sort of harkens back to what you were saying saying earlier about like everyone else putting meaning on you just when you walk out the door. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, not me personally, but all of us, of course, right? We all do this to each other. And sometimes because that is what we've got to work with and other times very loaded and very painful. Uh, Yeah, the size changing thing started as an accident when I was drafting where I kind of like forgot how big the character was and they were different sizes and different scenes. And a friend of mine pointed this out to me and she sort of said like, what if you kept that and made it on purpose? And I was like, sure, you know, I'm being creative here, definitely not making mistakes. So I went back and I made I made it a, a deliberate thing in the story. The person changes sizes and, and can like become very big and very small and oftentimes is making themselves very, very tiny or crawling up the wall and getting out of the way. And once I did that, it a couple of other things about that story really clicked into place for what I was trying to do, which is um, sort of the sense that if you're somebody who hasn't been able to for whatever reason, externally or internally, kind of ask for what you really want. The first time you ask for what you really want and you even get it, you can sort of feel like asking for anything else will will spoil the whole thing. Some people feel like if I ask somebody to be nice to me, to use the language that I would use to describe myself, I can't really ask for anything else. It would be unfair of me to ask for them to like knock it off with their mean jokes or, you know, uh, pay me fairly and any other kind of accommodation, right? That kind of fear that I can only have one thing at a time is really real for a lot of people in different kinds of circumstances. And it's been real for me in the past. And uh, sometimes, even though I don't internalize it as much anymore, I can still feel the pressure to behave that way. If I'm in a work situation and, wow, you know, I have like a a boss or coworkers who, you know, never give me a hard time about who I am as a person and they use all the right language, like heaven forbid I ever have like any kind of work related conflict with them. That would be that would just be, you know, entitled. Right. Um and so I I noticed that as kind of like a one of the first things that becomes really apparent when people start shifting from intolerance to tolerance is it's really like a conditional tolerance. It's like, well, okay, you can do your weird little thing. But, like, don't ask for health care, too, you know, one thing at a time. Um, so so that size-changing thing ended up helping me really deepen, I think, what I was trying to play with in that story. So in your last story, The Things in Us We Fear Just Wants Our Love is, is very short, and it has yeah. it's, it's two paragraphs. And the second paragraph says, the narrator starts saying, but I think it's, less about acceptance of how we change than the social worker would have us believe and more about the fear we carry through the rest of each month that we don't. And what I got out of that is like, what if, what if transitioning or changing in some way doesn't actually change anything inside? Is that mm-hmm. a proper interpretation? And, and what would you say about that? I would say it is a proper interpretation it's a very, a very beautiful read um, on it. For many types of people um, who who end up in community health clinics and seeing uh, social workers or group therapists for one reason or another, whether they are uh, transitioning or whether they're a person in recovery or a person struggling with, you know, the kinds of things that that story sort of hints at and leaves room for. There's a there is a lot of emphasis in I would say like therapeutic practices about 
accepting, you know, the, the ways that your life has changed, accepting the ways that you're changing, focusing on mindfulness and like personal self-esteem. Um, and, you know, I was born in the late eighties. So I grew up with, um, self-esteem messaging is like the most important thing. And, um, specifically that phrase, like, you know, self-esteem and, and now everything is, now everything is, is mindfulness and self-care. But, um, but it's like, what if, you know, what if I do accept all that stuff, but I'm still just like some asshole, you know, I, at the end of the day, like I still have to go through my life and be just, you know, the flawed person that I am and, and, um, healing and recovery and self-esteem and mindfulness and, and transition and all these other different things like don't actually like fix my fundamental problems <laughs> as a personality and they don't fix all my relationships for me. And they certainly don't fix my relationship to, you know, the greater world. Um, and how, how scary is that? I, um, I play a little bit with a werewolf metaphor in that piece. Um, I didn't want to want it to be too one for one, but you know, a lot of werewolf stories are sort of like, oh, how romantic and tragic it is to have to be a wolf once a month. And I was like, but what, like how, how mind numbing and mundane to be a human the rest of the month, right? Um, so, to to me, that story is about. Um, yeah, you know, most, most of life you just have to get through most of life. You just kind of have to like keep, keep trying. Um, there's no, there's no point at which you get to shrug off all your problems because you've completed a process and that's really, that's really scary. Um, and the community that you get from, you know, experiencing something, you might meet people who've gone through the same thing as you. Those relationships are not necessarily going to be easier just because all of you have gone through the same thing. Um, people are still going to be complicated and flawed and they're going to hurt each other uh, in, in new and interesting ways every day. So, you know, struggling with that and deciding that you love each other enough to not say this community isn't all roses. This experience isn't what I wanted it to be. I guess, you know, screw it. Say like, no, I am going to keep living my life and I am going to keep caring about, about others. It's hard. You have a very short story that is called the Android that designed itself. And it has three yeah. sections and With the, a little triptych. Yeah. And the very last section is, begins with this, this is part of the sentence, to take shape is to sever the infinite possibilities of wanting into a fragile burden of being. I think what's scary about making choices, even choices that you want very much, is that um, now you have to live with them. Um, uh, and, and this can be true for even the most desired thing in the world, especially if it's something that is you know, supposed to be impossible or something you didn't know was possible, especially if it's something that sort of ironically that you've worked very, very hard for a long time for. When you actually can reach out and get it, you realize that you are forever cutting off other possible futures in your life that some part of you intellectually knows you don't want and you're ready to let go of. But it's weird. There can be a kind of grief to getting what you want. And I think that that grief 
is not regret. It's not the same thing as having made a mistake. And you see a lot of people who go through like, I guess, I guess in particular with, with transition, you will see a lot of people struggle with like heavy ups and downs, especially after something like a major surgery, just to simplify it. Um, and some of that is just the healing process. And some of that is, you know, general anesthesia kind of messes with you for a while. But um, that's like the most normal thing in the world to feel like bizarre grief after actually getting what you want. So like come down after the last day of summer camp, you know, there is this sort of realization of like, oh, wow, yeah, Whew. time keeps marching on and my life keeps moving. And like, there's something kind of luxurious about being when you're young, people telling you, you can do anything, you can be anything. At a certain point, that stops being true. That isn't to say that you can never start over. It's to say that you can never delete your past and get more time. And you have to be really, really comfortable if you want to start over at a certain point in your life with saying like, I'm not exactly the same as people who've been doing this for a long time, or I'm not the same person that I would be if I had done this earlier. There are just things that I won't have anymore and, and that's okay. And sometimes it's really literal, right? Um, there are uh, parts of uh, my body I have no feeling in <laughs> uh, anymore. The trade-off, the trade-offs have been worth it. And so I try to have a sense of perspective and a sense of humor about like, Oh yeah. Oh, this is real now. I did this and this is who I am. And I'm so proud of myself. And like, I can just decide this and I can just have this. I can just be who I want to be. But it, it, it can be tough, especially if a lot of expectations have been placed on you. I will say that um, in regards to gender, especially, I think people who transition and were really had a lot of hopes placed on them by their parents or their family or their their community beforehand. Let's say you're, you know you're the you're the only daughter in a in a family of boys, and then you transition to male. You know, um, you kind of like you stop being able to fulfill people's fantasies for you in more in more ways than just like not meeting feminine stereotypes, right? And and there can be kind of um, even with the most supportive environment in the world, you can sort of be like, oh yeah, I guess this thing that I've been trained for that I've in some ways internalized that I'm supposed to do, like I can't do that anymore. And, and that can be, that can be hard internally. There's another story in here. It was very metaphorical and sort of literal at the same time. It's called the heavy things. And it's, oh, a, yeah. it's about a, a, a girl who starts talking about her when she got her period, which was young and heavy and ve- very heavy. And she mm-hmm. sort of envisions it as, as things coming out of her, like needles and nail clippers and screwdrivers. And it's like a violent time every time she gets it. And at the same time, she goes to the doctor, you know, tries to find out about her cycle. And then we find out that there's maybe some hormone suppressants she can take um, to maybe change that or change her. And that at one point, you know, when drugs got too expensive, her mom says to her, like, stop your meds. And, and she asks her mom, like, would you stop taking your heart medication? So you, you know how, like, essential to her health and mental stability taking these drugs are. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, like, how did you first formulate this this metaphorical and very physical idea of the story? Because you were saying very um, a lot earlier that you want people to have a physical reaction. And it was very, very tangible, 
it's interesting. This is actually a story where your character is trans. So um, they're not they're not a woman. Um, it's to me very much um, a, a story about about transition. Um, so I, I wouldn't describe the character as she. I would say, um, for the purposes of the story, we'll keep it as they. They're experiencing something very literal. Um, it is. It, they are literally shedding tools from their body. It's monstrous and, and terrifying, and no one can explain it to them. But there's this idea that because it's happening naturally, that, that, that it's supposed to happen, that's good. So that story really came out of the way people talk about bodily function around sex and gender as, you know, whatever your body's doing normally is inherently, like, better and the right thing for it. Um, and so we're talking about a person whose menstrual cycle literally involves a Phillips head screwdriver forming in their cervix. And people are like, well, you know, I guess that's, I guess that's how it goes. You know, you think you could uh, grow us a new tool set down there? Um, whereas the idea of saying, well, I'm going to take some kind of medication that's going to stop this, first of all, but also, you know, I'm going to look very different in the process. And people are like, oh, no, you'd be ugly. That's bad. That's unhealthy. And so to me, this story is very much a uh, about the way that cis people uh, normalize and value uh, hypothetical cis people over real trans people. There's all this, like, hand-wringing and pearl-clutching and similar sorts of faux concern about, like, oh, but what are those chemicals and drugs doing to your body? And, like, that's not natural. And you know, you're injecting hormones or you're, you know, changing the way God made you or you're, you know, oh, you were so beautiful and now you're this kind of like puffy, pimply little lump with like chin hair. <laughs> I, you know, I missed my beautiful, normal, natural girl or, you know, I, I miss my handsome, uh, strapping son, however, however people want to think about it. Um, and especially the panic around um, trans uh, children and teenagers who absolutely do exist. You know, heaven forbid there are children and uh, teenagers who, who know what they want for their bodies. And um, the idea that, like, if they change their mind, they might, like, be weird looking. If we let, you know, a 16-year-old go on hormones or, like, then they won't be, you know, a cisgender adult. You know, what if they change their mind and they won't be able to have babies or, like, have chin hair or they won't have chin hair or they have boobs or they won't have boobs. And, like, this idea that, like, on a like platonic ideal of like a reproductively active, um, conventionally attractive cis person is being like spoiled, by actually like doing what they want with their lives is such a ridiculous and common fear. And and everyone's like, I'm just really like concerned about their future. And it's like, no, you're not. You're concerned about what you consider to be beautiful and normal, which <laughs> has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with these people's happiness. You know, heaven forbid we spoil a perfectly good cis person. It was really the underlying message there. Yeah, no, that that story is very much about about transition for me, uh, and about like how even if you had the most you know sympathetic, rational reason to be like, ah, uh, I'm gonna you know maybe change my body in a way that that stops this thing that's like, incredibly painful to me. Uh, people are like, yeah, but like that's weird. Don't you want to be, you know, like, what if, what if you want to be cute later? You won't be cute anymore. So can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? 
I'm going to read a short passage from uh, the author Christine Ong Muslim. She wrote a book a couple years back that's a collection of what can loosely be described as short stories. They're also just like really interesting kind of experimental pieces. Uh, The book is called Age of Blight. The author, again, is Christine Ong Muslim. And she has this four-page long story in the middle of this collection called The Ghost of Laika Encounters a Satellite. And Laika is is a real dog that got sent into space um, as part of, like, you know, jet age space experiments. It was a Soviet space dog. Um, And and the dog died. (laughs) And it was covered up, kind of. For a while, and so you know, later on, like in real life, like Leica appears on a commemorative postage stamp, and people sort of realize how gruesomely this poor doggy probably died of like heat radiation. But um, the story is from the perspective of the ghost of Leica, who's still out in space orbiting Earth, and like meets a satellite, and it. That premise is important because it's like bizarre and absurd, but it also completely works. Um, and there's this passage where Laika is addressing uh, the reader, and I'm going to read that. See that? Is she talking about the anger of the discarded, as it is the only thing in the world that is instantly recognizable? No one can look away from it without first being challenged. And that's my kind of anger, the one felt by the discarded the type of anger that most people are compelled for purposes of survival to ignore. When you look at me long enough, you might catch a glimpse of it. Do you feel challenged? It's true that we always grow back into our triumphant stable shapes, where we pose as if to contain something, something with a purpose, something with a will to entertain, to love, to hope. Do you want to say anything more about it? In the context of this story, this particular passage was so moving to me when I read it about, I want to say four or five years ago. I was like, oh, you can write a story about the weirdest stuff. This was great. And like, I knew that, but like, it was also just kind of like affirming to see an author pull it off. Um, and, and it's just, it's just such a strange and angry story. Here's this ghost dog um, who retains the desire to love well after being like kind of gruesomely discarded of that it wants to make friends with a passing satellite. And it's like, Hey, hello. (laughs) Um, And this line about the anger of the discarded and how uncomfortable it is to look at directly really stuck with me. And I would say influenced um, a lot of pieces in this collection it's it's kind of funny how like sometimes things you read very quickly and briefly and don't necessarily think are going to influence you that much at the time like can bubble back up in your mind and this is one of those one of those pieces for me can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft in the anchor novella everyone on the moon is a central essential personnel there's a, a mother of the two main characters the main characters are brother and sister, Lara and Sebastian, and their mother's name is Donna. Um, in the original draft of this story, uh, Lara, Sebastian, and Donna all had sort of like close third-person point-of-view sections. They all were kind of given chapters. 
And um, that's the thing that changed the most. Uh, in the final version, uh, Laura and Sebastian only have have perspective chapters. And everything that we know about Donna's point of view is filtered through her children's um, interpretations. So we have one section in the middle where her daughter is trying to piece together like what really happened in her mother's younger years. And then we have a section at the end where um, her son is is imagining um, what she actually does every day at work. And so that's the section that I'm going to read from. Uh, so translating these scenes uh, into something that both gave us enough information about Donna that she wasn't this two-dimensional character and also like really felt genuinely like they were coming from somebody else's perspective was very challenging. Perhaps it used to be that people who hired help didn't want to see or hear Sebastian's mother. And now they want to pretend to be friends with her. Flip the transaction into transcendence. Energy frequencies and empathy and setting and tensions, health and wellness, wealth and wellness. Sebastian imagines this client stepping off the elevator and tidying a designer's scarf around her throat. A throat that is as long and white as a crane's or swans or some other graceful water bird that he knows better than to approach because they are predators and viciously territorial and will hiss and charge and gladly bite your fingers off if you get too close. Sebastian imagines this avian-looking rich lady greeting his mother and leading her back to the elevator, staring and smiling the whole ascent to the penthouse. The rich lady never refers to his mother as a maid, always a cleaning person. The rich lady could easily purchase a fleet of custodia droids, but finds such robots sort of sad calls them something like another step on the path away from nature. The rich lady tells her friends that her marriage with her also rich husband is egalitarian because with Sebastian's mother, the rich couple need never argue about chores or worry over the gender division of domestic labor. The rich lady and her husband both wear rare gemstones on their wedding bands for equality. Do you want to share anything more about why you shared that one? I picked this piece because there's a lot of things that are probably true about it. We know that Donna is, works as a house cleaner and uh, probably has a pretty uh, complicated relationship with her clients uh, who are not only very wealthy, but sort of of an ilk where they feel a little guilty about being the kind of people who hire house cleaners. Um, and that much we, I wanted, I wanted to establish that that much was probably true. There's all these other kind of like, assumptions and confabulations both about what Donna's feeling and about what these these clients are feeling as a hundred percent Sebastian and his sort of like maximalist off the rails imagination. This was really challenging because I originally wrote this whole scene, including like the interaction going to the client's house and cleaning it and having a, a longer conversation between Donna and this woman. I had originally written it from Donna's point of view and it just completely changed. Um, in, in putting it in Sebastian's point of view, uh, it wasn't, it just wasn't quite adding up with the rest of the story when it came from Donna's point of view, but I didn't want to cut her. I didn't want to have a story that was just two kids kind of complaining about their mom and no information about her. I really wanted to avoid this really like flat stereotype of, oh, bad mother, right? You know, she's the person. But I also realized that making her perspective character 
was working against different sort of drive in the story, which is that you can't know everything about some people, particularly your parents. And these characters kind of have to work with the information that they have. And their mother has been this terrifying and inscrutable person. And she doesn't necessarily have to stay terrifying, but she might stay inscrutable. They might never get straight answers. Um, and I realized, oh, okay, if I give her, you know, an actual close third-person perspective where we know what she's thinking and feeling, it, it was working against the other things I was trying to do. So that was very, very challenging to reframe. Where do you write? Anywhere I can. Uh, since uh, we, we talked at the very beginning about uh, how I got into writing because I didn't have an art studio, uh, and that, that remains true. I um, It's one of the few things I can just do anywhere as long as I can space out. I can't be interrupted, but it could be any old place. Uh, frequently, it's like on the bus or after everybody else has gone to sleep. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I have a lot of solitary hobbies, actually. I build furniture. Uh, I compose music. I cook a lot. I go running. I live in a town that's uh, on the ocean, and I like to go running along the water and get distracted by every cute dog that I see. But um, I've never really felt that I needed to get away from writing. I'm just sometimes not feeling it, and I do other things instead. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? This really depends. Uh, I have, at this point, enough confidence in certain things that sometimes I'm the only person that sees it before it goes out somewhere. Usually I show the drafts to um, my husband, uh, who's a really fantastic thinker, when it comes to what people call the world building, he's just got the ability to like think about the big, big picture and he gives me great feedback. Um, and I sometimes send it to my friend, Jean Thornton, who is a writer herself and a brilliant editor. Um, the kind of editor who always comes back with questions mostly um, that are great and provocative and push me to um, make the work better. Uh, if I'm working on something like a script or a game or whatever, though, I, I will often show things to whoever will look at it because some kinds of writing are more uh, necessarily iterative with others. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, I don't take it personally at all. Um, I might engage with the reasons why I've been rejected if I'm lucky enough to know what they are. Um, but when I realize something wasn't as ready as I thought it was, it's really kind of a favor. It's like, how nice of someone to save me from the embarrassment of rushing this out. <laughs> um, if anything, I'm more impatient with like how slow it can be to hear back than I am with like actually being rejected. And what is your favorite word? In this book, there are a couple of stories where I definitely just set out to use a word. <laughs> so I kind of grew from wanting to use a word that I like. I really like the word lapidarium. Like, what a good one. Um, and I really like the word opalescent. These are like real $25 words. But on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I have a lot of little phrases that I use because I there was a point in my life where I had a, a radio show and I couldn't swear, but uh, I had to come up with alternate swears. So I say things like good gravy a lot. And if I'm really annoyed with somebody, I'm going to be like, wow, what a chucklehead. Uh, <laughs> and so my husband tells me that my favorite words are probably like cartoonish insults because uh, those are the things that most often come out of my mouth. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Julian K. Jarbo, author of Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Chavisa Woods, author of Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as thank yous include an extra 30 minutes collectively of interviews with Sahar Mustafa, Katrin Schumann, and Deb Olin Unferth. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Emily Niemans, Anna Solomon, Lori Gottlieb, Vanessa Hua, and more. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.